Witness Statements in a Changing World, Part 2. You're listening to Outlook, one of the commercial, construction and international arbitration podcast series brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello again. Welcome to part two of our mini-series, looking at witness statements and reforms in the business and property courts. I'm joined again by my colleagues, Johan Ho and Ruth Keating. In case you're new to this, they are both specialists in commercial and construction litigation at 39 Essex. I'm Philip Kuhn and I'm also junior barrister specializing in commercial disputes. In part one of this mini-series, we looked at some of the overarching themes and issues that come up with witness statements and evolving practices, also touching briefly on arbitration under the IBA and Prague rules. In this, pod, uh, in this part of this mini-series, we want to go one step beyond and really dive into the deep end. Uh, there are some rather complicated and far-reaching reforms uh, going through the business and property courts and it will be a matter of months most likely until we begin to see some of these reforms kick in and Ruth and Johan will address in detail the specifics of the reforms and I will chip in more anecdotally. With that, Ruth, over to you. What, what does the working group say about the scope of these proposals? Thanks, Philip. So in terms of a bit of a background before we dive into the details of, of what's being proposed, this group, the Witness Evidence Working Group, was set up in 2018. And the point of that group really was to address some or, or all of the concerns which we discussed in part one of the mini-series, the difficulties which arise in practice in terms of witness evidence. And we're now really seeing the fruits of their work and the fruits of their work are the draft practice direction uh, SNASDAQ called 57AC and the accompanying appendix. In terms of where we're at with that at the moment, it's in circulation, it's being commented on and as we'll come to, some of it is being road tested. But in broad terms, this is not, um, these are not the rules yet. They are very much proposals, but they certainly give an indication to users of the business and property courts of the direction of travel in terms of these reforms. In terms of the scope, they're going to apply to witness statements for use at trials in the business and property courts. They're going to apply to new and existing proceedings. So that's important. They're not going to apply certainly at this stage, or it would be surprising if they were to, they're not going to apply to witness statements signed on or after the date uh, where these proposals come into effect. And so there's no proposal that they're going to be retrospective. We don't need to get too worried about that. But we, of course, need to turn our eye to how we're going to deal with these proposals if they come in and how we're all going to change our practice. It's worth looking at those proposals in the draft practice direction to see how they might affect your practice area because there are certain exclusions um, under FISMA, IP adjudication in the TCC. And so it's certainly worth practitioners checking uh, how it might implement or change their practice more than others. But finally, I think in terms of the direction of travel, Mr. Justice Andrew Baker has been involved in the scheme and he's provided a comment on it. And what he said is the proper confinement of the proofing exercise by reference to considered advice on evidence is the bigger prize. And I suppose um, we all need to probably as lawyers keep in mind that bigger prize uh, when we're discussing these proposals and what might be possible in practice. Thank you for that, Ruth. So 
I mean, to sum up, uh, is it right to say then that the aim is to get solicitors to spend more time in preparing and indeed taking the statement itself and perhaps less in preparing it in the sense of crafting it, considering the evidential worth of the statement, the rules and best practice, uh, that's probably time well spent. Although from personal experience, I can see that causing real concern for clients with funds even in the biggest corporate actors being tighter than ever before or certainly in many years. Um, one thing that maybe is more positive coming out of these reforms is that they are targeted at making witness statements effective in performing their core functions and providing best evidence. I'm not sure at proportionate cost, um, but that remains to be seen. Moving on then to the statement of best practice, which is, uh, I think, from memory, was quite a difficult document to even locate. It's to be hoped that it becomes more easily obtainable and no doubt will become widely available once these reforms happen. Ruth, can you tell us about uh, what is included and its sort of coverage and remit? Certainly. So looking at it, um, I think Johan is, is well versed in terms of um, what some of the existing rules look like and how they've informed those proposals. But I think it's helpful as a starter to look at how the working group reported uh, the evidence that it received. And, and I think those concerns are reflected in the proposals that we've seen. So one of the points that they said came out from the evidence they received was that the lawyers who were in charge of drafting witness statements have very little guidance on the process. And so certainly the sense from reading the report and in turn reading the statement of best practice was that more guidance was needed to assist lawyers in this exercise. And the second related point they made on that was that they said that whilst the seniority and experience of lawyers may differ widely, that junior solicitors may be given the function of preparing first drafts and they may have limited experience of the role and the function of a witness statement in a trial process. And I think that's certainly true. We did refer in, in part one to the point that, of course, a witness statement is meant to stand as evidence in chief, but how many people have really seen evidence in chief being carried out in trial? And certainly then how many of those people are then meant to draft a witness statement? So there is some difficulty there. And finally, they said there was universal agreement among the members of the working group that an authoritative statement of best practice was needed for the preparation of witness statements. And so we're going to dive into some of the detail of those proposals and what's in the statement of best practice. But I think it's important to keep in mind that it really is meant to assist lawyers. And of course, we'll just have to assess the extent to which it assists and the extent to which it makes taking witness statements a bit more difficult in practice. What the statement of best practice does, in large part, is not controversial. It stresses existing rules. Witnesses should only give evidence on what they can speak to personally. It is not acceptable to provide lengthy commentary and disclosure documents. Witnesses should not seek to argue the case either generally or on particular points. The statement should not be used for the purposes of comment or spin. And statements should be as concise as possible without omitting anything of significance. None of this is unfamiliar or controversial, but what it does is it adds an important new requirement that for important disputed matters of fact, the statement should, if practicable, state in the witness's own words how well they recall the matters addressed, 
state whether the witness's recollection in relation to those matters has been refreshed by reference to documents, and if so, identifying those documents, and if applicable, state how well the witness recalled matters prior to their recollection being refreshed by considering the documents. So this new requirement, in some ways, is quite radical. It looks at the chain of evidence and what may affect the witness's uh, recollection when those thoughts are put down into writing in the statement. Thank you, Johan. And Ruth, what does it say about the preparation of a trial witness statement? So we do get some specifics on the kinds of things we should all keep in mind when we're preparing a witness statement and drafting a witness statement. The first key point is that we should use as few drafts as possible. And of course, we'll all be familiar with the scenario where a witness statement, really being the base rock of the case, can go through various iterations before it reaches its final form. But what the statement of best practice asks us to do is to limit that to as few drafts as possible. It also highlights another very key part of that relationship with the witness, which is, of course, the interviews that are carried out to obtain evidence. And it gives us some guidance both on how we should approach that and also what that process should look like. So unsurprisingly, what they say is to avoid leading questions where possible. And you certainly, it says, shouldn't use leading questions in relation to important contentious matters. Now, this will be something which lawyers will have to keep very firmly in mind, given the nature of litigation is that by the time witness statements are being drafted, there's often already been the preliminary stages of the case. And so we're aware what the contentious matters are, but those taking the witness statements will no doubt be aware of how important it is that, that certain evidence comes out in those statements. And the practical advice they give us on how to do that is, is simply ask open questions as much as possible. Do leave it to the witness um, to give as much detail as they can and then, and then form the statement out of that. But what it says is that where we do need to ask follow-up questions about previous detail which has been given, they should be limited to clarification or details about prior answers. So very much the theme of the statement of best practice in terms of the process is get the evidence from the witness in the words that they would use and try use open statements insofar as possible. And finally, I suppose, looking at how we evidence that, that's also very important. And what the statement of best practice says is that we should, so far as possible, fully and accurately keep a contemporaneous note or other records dated and retained uh, to evidence how this process has been properly carried out. So certainly some helpful guidance, but things which will very much have to be integrated uh, into the process of, of witness statement drafting. Oh, certainly very far-reaching reforms. I think that last point in particular, I'm a bit nervous about, you know, unless it's sufficient to say you met a witness on a certain day at a certain time. I think I can see privilege issues and all sorts of complications arising from that. The next hot topic, and I think this is the point in this part of the mini-series to really perch up and listen attentively, uh, for all the partners and senior lawyers listening in, the practice direction requires a certificate of compliance. Johan, what is that? What the practice direction requires is that trial witness statements must now be endorsed with a certificate of compliance in a prescribed form, certifying that the relevant legal representative, number one, is satisfied that the purpose and proper content of trial witness statements and proper practice in relation to their preparation has been discussed with and explained to the witness. Number two, 
believes that the statement complies with CPR Practice Direction 57AC and paragraphs 18.1 and 18.2 of Practice Direction 32, and that it had been prepared in accordance with the statement of best practice contained in the appendix to Practice Direction 57AC. The statement is to be given in relation to a trial witness statement by a legal representative authorised to conduct litigation, who had responsibility for ensuring that the purpose and proper content of trial witness statements and proper practice in relation to their preparation has been explained to and understood by the witness. So drawing all of that together, who signs it? Short answer, probably the partner with conduct of the matter. So the court requires that partner to put his name down and be prepared to stand by that certificate of compliance. Now, a litigant in person does not need to sign a certificate of compliance, but if the court has reason to consider that a litigant in person became a litigant in person to avoid the need for a certificate of compliance, then the court's empowered to strike out the trial witness statement. So there can be a very drastic consequence if there's some kind of chicanery to avoid the certificate of compliance. What the working group said is that this certificate of compliance would encourage witnesses and solicitors to focus on the relevant requirements without adding substantially to cost, to give solicitors grounds to push back if the client insisted on including inappropriate material in a witness statement, and would warn the named solicitor that he or she would be at risk of being identified if criticism is subsequently expressed. Well, I think that the next big one to discuss, Philip, jumping on Johan's point, is the listing of documents proposal. And what that means in practice is that a trial witness statement is is going to have to do two things. It's going to have to identify what documents, if any, the witness has been referred to or has looked at for the purposes of providing the evidence set out in their trial witness statement. And the second point they note is that this requirement to identify documents that the witness has been referred to does not affect any privilege that may exist in relation to any of those documents. Um, I think we can already see some of the difficulties that are developing there. And of course, as we'll all be aware, the scale of some litigation means that that list could be quite considerably long, depending on the nature of the case. And there's going to be cost implications of that for parties in terms of how they run the litigation. But the final thing I'd say on that is that some concerns have been expressed about this proposal. It is, in my view, one of the more controversial proposals we're seeing. And it's also worth noting that the working group itself is divided on this point. So we'll see what this looks like in the final form, but it's certainly something to have on our radar. That's fascinating, Ruth. And I think let's hand over to Johan to see what the upsides or sort of the justifications for this change would be. Some believe that this strikes the appropriate balance between transparency regarding the interactions of the witness and party autonomy in presenting the evidence. It also gives the judge important information to help him or her assess the weight to be given to the witness's evidence. And coming back to this, what are the concerns, Ruth? Well, I don't want to be too negative about it after uh, Johan's points there in favour. And I think there certainly are benefits. But the difficulties, as I see them, in terms of this proposal are first that some believe the requirement simply goes too far and that it particularly goes too far in the context of large commercial 
disputes, which can be very complex. They can span many years. They can have many, any, many actors, many parts. And so it may be necessary to take the witness through contemporaneous documents to put them back in the context or the relevant place they were at the time. But I think the concerns as I see it then are that if we do that for the witness, which we have to, they raise a number of concerns. The first and not least is that the possibility that a judge may draw an adverse inference from a very long list and might think that the quality of that witness's evidence is somehow less. And despite some of the comments in the, the working group report, and we'll certainly have to see where that goes, there are some difficulties in terms of privileged documents. It's not clear at this stage the level of detail that will be required, and certainly any list would provide the opposing party with information that they wouldn't normally be entitled to, even if the privilege in that underlying document is maintained. So I think there are going to be difficulties, and, and not least the final one, which is that where we have a witness who's also a client, and therefore necessarily they'll have reviewed the documents in the course of giving instructions. And so the question is, does it put certain witnesses on an unfair footing rather than others? But overall, looking at it, I think there's just a risk that it's going to be time consuming and costly. So not to be too negative, but I think there are some of the concerns that people have, and we'll certainly have to see how they're balanced with the benefits. I, I can fully see all of those concerns. And I guess an interesting aspect for our listeners, which may not be obvious because I think it's fair to say this has been quite low key, but I understand that there's been a bit of road testing. Johan, what are the details on that? Yes, two firms have volunteered to undertake test drives of this practice direction. All four test drives relate to part seven trials in the commercial court. Two related to a witness who was also the client. One related to a major witness who was not the client. And the last related to a minor witness. So it is a small sample size, but it does give a flavour of how this would work in practice. In three of the four examples, the time found to be required to comply with the proposed list of documents requirement was said to be insignificant relative to the time spent on the witness statement generally. Some have expressed a concern that witnesses will be shown more documents than than are reasonably required. However, Mr Justice Andrew Baker has made clear that this fear is misplaced, and he has said it is not a reasonable interpretation of the statement of best practice to think that it favours showing more rather than fewer documents to witnesses. Thank you, Johan. I guess what concerns have been answered by this road test, Ruth? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is this enough? I mean, one personal anecdote is, are they, try, are they testing it in the right sort of cases? Well, my difficulty is that I just don't think this is a complete answer to the concerns that have been raised. We don't have anything on privileged documents and we don't have anything yet on the negative inferences that judges may draw. And so those questions are, of course, still unanswered. But the final point, Philip, is really what you've said is it's such a small sample size. Yes, of course, it's helpful. It's more helpful than nothing. But what we don't have are the details of those individual cases. And necessarily, I don't think we have a sample size large enough to draw some of the firm conclusions which we would need to. Absolutely, Ruth. And just to, I don't want to say this, add insult to injury or to make life a bit more difficult, there's also our final topic on this new set of reforms, which is enhanced statement of truth. Uh, Johan, what, what is this? Because by way of background, in April 2020 this year, we already got an enhanced statement of truth 
every witness statement now has to refer specifically to awareness that you can be held in contempt of court. What what are they proposing now? It's only been about seven, eight months from the last enhanced statement of truth. Maybe we can call this a super enhanced statement of truth. What this requires is there needs to be confirmation that the witness has read or had read to them certain sections of the practice direction and appendix. In essence, that the parts of the practice direction as to the purpose and content of a witness statement and the parts of the appendix which cover the fallibility of human memory, the role of witnesses, the reasons why documents should be shown to a witness and that as few drafts as possible should be used. If applicable, the legal representatives of that witness also need to have explained those matters to the witness. What is quite clear is that the court is has a very strong desire for these matters to be taken with the utmost seriousness. Thank you, Johan. I mean, clearly, clearly there's a lot of food for thought there. And we should add, we are commenting on what is a draft practice direction I think a lot of these points are still hotly contested, perhaps not necessarily in public, but I'm sure different judges and practitioners have a range of views and be interesting to see what the final shape of these reforms is. But what we've endeavoured to do is comment on what there is. And I suspect, and I'd be curious to see whether jo- Johan and Ruth agree with this, this will be substantially what we'll end up with. I think it's very much still a wait-and-see approach. But what we have seen in the comments and feedback to these proposals is there isn't an appetite for very radical reform from users. And there's a real concern that in seeking to reduce costs, one might actually end up with increased costs. And I, I think, Philip, I probably share Johan's view that we'll see something, something similar to this, certainly. But whether the appetite is there, uh, at least at the beginning, might be quite a different question. Thanks a lot, Ruth. And we hope that our listeners join us for our final uh, part of this three-part mini-series. What we haven't covered yet, and I'm conscious we've covered quite a bit, is alternative ways of deploying evidence, which you know is sort of how do you get around these rules if you don't like them? Um, naming and shaming, you know, potential implications for legal representatives, especially if things go wrong. Um, the costs implications of these reforms, which is something we've touched on, but I think we'd, we'd want to look at more closely. And then as a final topic, but this you know deserves its own mini-series, implications in international arbitration and other courts. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.